So the work that I do with immigrant integration and well-being, I think is more broadly significant to the multiculturalism project that Canada has embarked on. My name is Vincent Kunre, and I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Geography here at UTM. Of course, there's the idea that people who come into Canada can continue to maintain their identities and live lives within the broader Canadian society is an important one to celebrate. And I think that some of those ideas that are driving my interest in immigrant integration and well-being are also directly connected to, you know, celebrating Black history. Immigrant well-being and global health. For this next season of U to the U, we tap into the amazing breadth of expertise on the U of T Mississauga campus and focus on a main driving question for the series this year, or an eye on why. For this particular episode, we focus on, although low and middle income countries like Ghana, Kenya, and Malawi are urbanizing at a rapid pace, why is the spread of non-communicable and infectious diseases still so prevalent? I am delighted to say that we are turning to Professor Vincent Query from UTM's Department of Geography for an answer to this question, along with some other insights related to his research. Hello, and welcome to View to the U, an eye on UTM research. I'm Carla DeMarco at U of T Mississauga. View to the U is a monthly podcast that will feature UTM faculty members from a range of disciplines who will illuminate some of the inner workings of the science labs and enlighten the social sciences and humanities hubs at UTM. Over the course of the interview, we cover Vincent's work, which includes a broad range of considerations, including social inequities associated with access to healthcare and immigrant integration dynamics with regards to the healthcare system in Canada as well as healthcare for older populations and maternal health, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. Vincent explains things they have in place there, like the double burden of disease and the pro-poor policies that exist in insurance schemes. Vincent also emphasizes the importance of global health research and collaboration in this area for times, as we have seen recently, during a virus outbreak. Vincent Query is an assistant professor at U of T Mississauga, where he has been on faculty in the Department of Geography since 2017. And he is also a Canada Research Chair in Immigrant Wellbeing and Global Health. He completed undergraduate studies at the University of Ghana and obtained his master's and PhD in geography with migration and ethics relations at Western University in London, Ontario. From 2015 to 16, Vincent was a postdoctoral fellow on a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada-funded project, Age-Friendly Communities, Friendly for Whom, under the supervision of Professor Mark Rosenberg, the Canada Research Chair in Development Studies at Queen's University. I'm a health geographer by training, and I study two broad areas within health geography. So the first area that I am interested in is related to global health. And within global health, I study things about access to healthcare, not the typical geography in terms of accessibility and distance and those things, but more really to the social inequities associated with access to healthcare. What groups of people are not having access to healthcare? And in that area of research, I've focused on older populations as well as uh, maternal health. But I'm also interested in non-communicable diseases, as well as, you know, the changing health dynamics 
that we see in many low and middle income countries. And I focus on sub-Saharan Africa for this research. I also do research on immigrant integration and well-being, and I'm interested in what factors are associated with the integration pathways of immigrants, but particularly how are those factors impacting their overall well-being in terms of social health in particular. So those are the two broad areas that I do as a researcher. You know, I didn't realize that you study maternal health. So are you then working with mothers who are pregnant or after they have a baby? The few projects that I've done on maternal health have really been trying to assess what factors influence positive maternal health outcomes. So we looked at Malawi and Nigeria over the course of almost two decades. Have they seen improvements and what factors are associated with with those improvements in maternal health outcomes, particularly related to the use of antenatal care and the use of um, post-antenatal care services because these two factors are associated with positive maternal health outcomes. We also, together with some collaborators, we looked at whether health insurance improved maternal access to health care services in Ghana. At the time that we did this work, um, Ghana's health insurance was just a little over a decade old. And one of the things that people were really interested in understanding is have these premium exemption policies for mothers or pregnant women led to successes in achieving some of the targets that um, the WHO recommends for what is categorized as good maternal health strategies. And we did make some interesting findings that yes, there were positives as far as the health insurance is concerned. In other words, people who had health insurance were more likely to use these services. And I've since moved on. Particularly, I have focused on health access of older populations. So Ghana is one of the few countries that has a national health insurance scheme on the sub-Saharan African continent. And its insurance scheme is described as a pro-poor insurance scheme. And being pro-poor, what it means is that they have specific groups of people that are exempted from paying premiums. So if you are 70 years or above, if you are pregnant, if you are under the age of 18, and if your society describes you as poor or indigent. So my interest really was to assess using various metrics whether people who are 70 years or older have access to healthcare services. So one of the first work that we did tried to examine whether wealth status impacted people's access to health insurance. Because as a proposed policy, one of the aims is to eliminate disparities based on wealth. And so that's why the premium exemption policies were implemented for persons who are 70 years. In other words, they could just show up to an insurance place and be registered, paying really minimum fees. They don't pay the premium, they pay the enrollment charges. But we did find that despite the elimination of the premium for these groups of people, in other words, people who are 70 years and older, there were still disparities in wealth. And so we decided to sort of follow that up with other research to examine whether, for example, people who have what is called unmet need. So unmet need is when you are sick and you need health care, but you do not get a health care. So it means you have an unmet need. And so we decided to find out whether older people had an unmet need based on some of these initial disparities that we saw. And again, we saw that these existed both among men and women, but the extent to which 
these disparities existed among men and women were different. So, for example, the way wealth operated within women was much more pronounced than it did for men, which still suggests that the pro-poor intentions of the health insurance policy are not exactly being met. So I'm really interested in those socioeconomic disparities in access to healthcare, not the typical geography, spatial analysis kinds of access issues that many of my colleagues deal with. So say the wealthier people had better access to healthcare, what was then that attributed to? Is it because they were able to pay? Is there some kind of privatized? There were a number of other studies that we, we did still in relation to that. And consistently, we think that there are other fees or other costs associated with enrolling in healthcare that do not have anything to do with premium exemptions. So for example, transportation costs. So depending on where people live, they may have to pay a transport fee to get to their registration point. And so if you are poor um, and not having access to money to engage in that trip, then you will not be enrolled. There may be other cost elements that are not visible or not accounted for within the premium exemption policies accounting for the disparities we see. And I think this, for example, is an opportunity for some really great qualitative work to be done to see that, well, within these groups, as some of these hunches that we have reasonable explanations for the disparities we see between rich old people and poor old people as far as access to health insurance and access to other healthcare services are concerned. I was reading about your research and I see that uh, although low and middle income countries like Ghana, Kenya and Malawi are urbanizing at a rapid pace, I understand that there has still been a uh, a spread of non-communicable and infectious diseases. And so I'm wondering why you, you think that's still so prevalent. So I got interested in this work through some collaborations with colleagues, Eric Tinkrang at Memorial University. He's a sociologist there, as well as with one of my PhD supervisors, Isaac Lugina at Western. And initially we were interested in finding out what factors were associated with non-communicable disease incidents within the general population in Ghana. And consistently, we saw that certain demographics were more likely to have different kinds of non-communicable diseases. So initially, we started with hypertension and we expanded the research to other non-communicable diseases using secondary data. And what I became more aware of during the period of collaborating with these colleagues was that even though infectious diseases continue to be the most important cause of death and disease in populations, but increasingly, many people, especially in, even in demographics that you do not expect them to be having non-communicable diseases, particularly middle-aged people, tended to be associated with these conditions as well. And these are the result of rapid urbanization and associated changes in lifestyles. So in many low and middle income countries, you tend to have two groups of people that are benefiting or, if you like, not benefiting from the rapid economic growth as well as rapid urbanization trends that are happening. So the first group of people are the ones who are slightly more educated and therefore are taking advantage of all the opportunities that are emerging. And so they can afford certain lifestyle changes which predispose them to these non-communicable diseases. At the same time, we have a teeming number of people, particularly people who are migrating from rural areas in search of opportunities 
in urban areas, living in really dilapidated slum-like conditions. And these conditions are ripe for sort of the continuous presence of many types of infectious diseases, whether they are lifestyle infectious diseases or related to the nature of, of the environment. So there is that concurrence of the non-communicable diseases, but also the persistence of infectious diseases, which has strongly defined the health profile of many low- and middle-income countries. So it's led to a situation where scholars have described it as a double burden of disease. So what basically that means is that both infectious diseases and non-communicable diseases, because of the conditions that many of these locations find themselves in, are persistent at the same time. And so it has a dual impact on the population in terms of a lot more people suffering from non-communicable diseases, but also infectious diseases. But it also has a dual impact on the healthcare system that it has to concurrently deal with these two conditions. It's important to state that it is also these low and middle income countries that have weaker health delivery systems and are able to manage with the burdens that are associated with these diseases. So there are all these global factors that are resulting in economic growth, but it's also associated with the lifestyle changes that is resulting in the increasing incidence of non-communicable diseases because of the lifestyle changes. And so that's called the double burden, where it's the non-communicable and the infectious diseases that are both. Yes. What is known as a double burden of disease is facing the populations as well as the health systems. So within populations, for the longest time, we have always known that infectious diseases are the most important cause of death for populations in low- and middle-income countries like Ghana, where I, I focus on, and Kenya and Malawi, where I'm trying to expand my project to. But at the same time, increasingly, particularly in the last three decades, there's a rapid increase in incidence of non-communicable diseases, hypertension, stroke, cancer, etc., etc. And so because of the rapid increase of incidence of infectious diseases and the persistence of non-communicable disease, these two together impact population health as well as the healthcare system. And that's why it's called the double burden of disease because within the disease profiles of most societies, there's a theory that's called a epidemiological transition. And what the theory suggests is that populations usually move from a phase of infectious diseases being the main cause of illness and death to a phase where degenerative conditions such as chronic diseases or man-made diseases become the dominant. So if you take the case of Canada, there are few incidents of infectious diseases. So that is the expected profile and that these movements from infectious diseases to non-infectious diseases is sequential. But in the case of low and middle income countries, we don't see that sequential move. We see concurrently that infectious diseases are still important causes of death and disease, but also rising or rapid increases of non-communicable diseases as a cause of uh, mortality and morbidity within the population. So that scenario is what is called a double burden of disease because they have not moved sequentially from infectious diseases being the dominant to non-communicable diseases being the dominant disease profile of the population. Thank you for that explanation because I think that clarifies it. And then I can't help but ask because everyone's talking about COVID-19 or coronavirus. Have these countries been affected at all? As of this recording, I am unaware of any infection on the sub-Saharan African continent. But I think it's important to make a case for global health research. 
I think this should be a wake-up call because what happens in one country invariably has impacts or consequences in, in other countries. And so incidents of infectious diseases such as COVID-19 or Ebola, which we saw the massive outbreak in 2014-2015, which caused um, a global scare and SARS and MERS previously, these are all signs indicative of why global health research should be a collaboration between global north and the global south even though the origin of the disease might not be from here. Based on the research that you've done in these areas, have you seen patterns emerging in the occurrence of infectious and non-communicable diseases? One of the patterns that has sort of led me to do further research is that consistently, particularly for non-communicable diseases, we saw in some of our findings that populations in urban areas were always more likely to be the ones that had these non-communicable diseases. But even more interesting, particularly in the case of women, that more highly educated women and women in upper socioeconomic status class generally, particularly those with higher wealth, tended to be the ones that have these non-communicable diseases. So in a sense, there's what is called the inverse of the social gradient of health. So the social gradient of health basically explains that there's a relationship between your socioeconomic status and health and that populations with low socioeconomic status tend to have higher incidence of diseases generally or poor health generally. But in this case, we are seeing that the section of the population within the higher socioeconomic status bracket are the ones that are also having these non-communicable diseases. Exactly. In those instances, the social gradient of health is inversed. And I think many people who do global health research are familiar with these findings. These but primarily in women. Yes, particularly in the case of Ghana, where we had done these studies. Not only were estimates really big for women, but they were consistent. Because you'd think that because non-communicable diseases are associated with lifestyle, that when you control for lifestyle factors, that if nothing at all, it will sort of attenuate or reduce some of the effects that we see. But especially for women, even when we control for lifestyle factors, those were not important. Um, the results always remain really robust for in the case of women. So that leads to further questions, right? That what is it about women in urban areas with higher socioeconomic status in particular that even when you control for lifestyle factors, they seem to be um, no attenuation of the relationship as far as non-communicable diseases are concerned. So that is part of the reason why I'm embarking on the new phase of the project that I'm currently working on to try to understand whether, for example, are there specific things within the urban environment, within these contexts, particularly, I mean, taking the case of Ghana, for example, that are responsible for the results that we've seen so far. Uh, so I know that you touched on this a little bit, but sometimes neighborhoods are the determining factor related to health. I'm just wondering why you're finding that that is. So one of the reasons why I've decided to focus on neighborhoods moving forward with this research is because the neighborhoods that we see in many low and middle income countries are really rapidly evolving locations. And so they are important that you can really test out whether there are specific things related to the different kinds of neighborhoods, for example, that may be responsible for some of the findings that we have seen. So for example, 
in some of the studies that we've done, and, and these are yet to come out, we've seen consistently that one neighborhood factor seem to be associated with all the health conditions that we've studied. So the Ghana Statistical Service calculates a Gini index for every neighborhood or as many neighborhoods as they can in most metropolitan areas. And of course, the Gini index is just you know a number that shows the extent of inequality within the society. And so we studied six neighborhoods and we found consistently that neighborhoods that we categorized as having a higher than average inequality consistently was associated with the various types of non-communicable diseases that we've looked at. And no amount of controlling for factors attenuated the relationship. It always remained very robust. And so it gives me a sense that there are a number of things that are potentially ongoing that are possibly related to inequalities being measured through these, this inequality instrument that we included in our study that speaks to the relationship with negative health outcome in particular. And so, and this is the next phase of, of, of the work, to try to come up with indices or a skill that is relevant to the context by speaking with people on the ground to see what factors are important for going into this skill. And hopefully the intention is to be able to say that as far as if you use whether it's an activity skill or it's an environmental quality skill, or we still haven't come up with that yet. We hope to speak with people on the ground to be able to understand what may go into this. But knowing what exists in the literature, we already have some ideas of where to go with this. But in the end, we are hoping to be able to say that because of these specific living environment conditions in neighborhoods, that is why consistently we are seeing these findings. There's something special about neighborhoods that we haven't understood yet, at least in the context of, of Ghana, that I think will throw more light on why we're seeing these results so far. I know from speaking to someone else how important it is to talk to people on the ground because I'll never forget when I was talking to someone in geography who also does you know, research related to health and access to healthcare that she said sometimes the literature didn't necessarily reflect what people, once they got to interviewing them in some focus groups and surveys, yeah. it really didn't match up. So it was so important to get that more complete picture. Yeah, definitely. Especially because most of the work that we've done so far have been quantitative and especially using secondary data sources. They do not capture some of the intricacies and really the idiosyncrasies that are associated with locations that may be important for explaining those results that we've seen so far. So it is really important to talk with people on the ground to see what are the factors that they are dealing with and how do those connect with um, health outcomes or the health profile of those locations. And are people in Ghana, do they do like a census sort of thing? Yeah, this 2020 is a census year. And I think it starts um, in a few months from now. And I'm really excited about that too, because it's going to also give us new measures in terms of poverty headcount, which was one of the variables we used in our study. Again, the inequality measure, the Gini index coefficient for, for each of those neighborhoods. 
and many other there's things related to percentage of people with potable water in their homes and and things like that so at the broader neighborhood level we'll be able to get some of that information from the census which will be done this year but also talking more uh, with people through those qualitative interviews will give us an insight on some of the things that may be related to health outcomes which will then inform our development of any scale or index that we will then try to check its connection with non-communicable diseases in particular. Coming up, Vincent talks about the importance of Black history and celebrating Black History Month, how he got interested in this research area in the first place, and the impact of his work. It's currently Black History Month, and I know that your research, particularly the Canada Research Chair Associated Projects, cover immigrant well-being. So I'm wondering if you could briefly talk about this work and why it's important. Yes, it is indeed Black History Month, and it's important to continue to celebrate Black History Month for a number of reasons. But before I get to those reasons, so the work that I do with immigrant integration and well-being I think is more broadly significant to the multiculturalism project that Canada has embarked on. And of course, there's the idea that people who come into Canada can continue to maintain their identities and live lives within the broader Canadian society is an important one to celebrate. And I think that some of those ideas that are driving my interest in immigrant integration and well-being are also directly connected to, you know, celebrating black history. And one of the reasons why I think it's important to keep, you know, talking about all the activities about Black History Month and celebrating black history is because there's this tendency for us not to tell history properly in many contexts. And Canada is not any different. And I think that it's important to continue to celebrate Black History Month because of that. In the academy, many people are aware that the history of black people in this country goes way back to the 1600s. And that black people together with indigenous people were enslaved people in Canada. In the academy, this is popular knowledge, especially for people who do research on Canadian history and Canadian black studies in particular. But this is not popular culture. I think what most people tend to know more about is Canada's role in the Underground Railroad. And I think that in as much as that was important, it's also important to talk about the other historical facts that Canada has been associated with as far as black people are concerned. But even more broadly, it's important to underscore that For example, Canada has always been part of the British Empire and the Empire Expansion Project was largely associated with a history of enslavement and colonization. And so it is proper to continue to celebrate black history because, not just because black history is about slavery and colonization alone, but it is because it's important to tell those colonization and slavery histories properly. Uh, I would argue, has not been done properly. But even more importantly, you know, the United Nations, for example, has talked about the fact that we are currently in what they describe as the decade of uh, people of African descent and issues around anti-black racism continue to persist in many societies. And so celebrating Black History Month and talking about black achievements beyond or even outside of 
slavery and, and colonization, it's important to take away some of the negative narratives that are associated with anti-black racism. So it is an important thing, and I'm happy that there are many activities within U of T that I've seen around, but also within, there's been some activities that the city council has been associated with as part of Black History Month celebration. So I think these are all important um, discussions that we need to keep having. Yeah, absolutely. And you're totally echoing something that uh, someone else pointed out. Um, she's a faculty member here in visual studies and English and drama. She's an Indigenous performance artist. Maria Hopfield is newly onto campus, but she talked about the importance of Indigenous people telling their own stories because she said historically, other people have told the stories and not accurately. Exactly. So it's time to take that back and tell the stories properly. Indeed, and there are many stories to be told because you can sort of categorize at least three broad groups, and this obviously is an overgeneralization, but three broad groups of black people that are associated with this country, people you know who were here during the enslavement period of this country's own history, but people who also moved here after the American Civil War. But since after World War II, there's been, you know, large waves of migration from the continent itself, Africa itself, and many people from, from Caribbean. And so there are all these groups of people who have different stories to tell about their existence within Canadian society. And I think it's important for us as black people to continue to tell these stories and not just, you know, focus on the ones that have been carefully manicured by society and just talk about one aspect that, I don't know if it's proper to say that sort of puts Canada only in a positive light. I think everything about the Canadian history as far as black people has to be told. And black people telling those stories is really important in pushing the exact narrative instead of, you know, one angle which um, is only positive. Absolutely. I, the word propaganda is popping into my head, but that, that's what it boils down to, right? I'm curious because I know that when you started out, I you know, saw your CV that you, you've been in geography for a long time, but I am curious, how did you get like, interested in this area in the first place? I have always been interested in geography. And I think for many people who get into this discipline, curiosity about different parts of the world is one of the ones that initially lead you to the discipline of geography. And so as a kid, I was always interested in... I, in fact, I participated in many quizzes which were geography, but you know they were about landmarks across the world and capitals, the typical geography thing. So when I went to high school and I did geography, then I realized I began to see that it's actually not about those things that before high school I was really interested in, there's a lot more to understand from um, the geographical perspective. And that sort of led me onto this journey. And then here I am today as a health geographer, even though in my undergrad, I wasn't exactly interested in health geography. I was interested in transportation and movement of people between locations and the mechanisms that drive transportation. But more importantly, transportation's role in the development process, obviously because I come from a developing country and I had read all these things about how transportation does facilitate development. So my lens opening to all these possibilities that exist in geography is what made me decide to stay in the discipline because I think there's a lot that you can learn from a geographical perspective. 
Absolutely. And I can't help but think that, of course, some of the work that you're doing in Ghana would have ramifications for even like the healthcare that we have in Canada. Yeah. Right? I think it's important to, to state that, especially because I'm interested in the different groups and how they interact with the healthcare system under the lens of this pro-poor policy that we have. It does have ramifications or implications for other locations, even if they are not um, developing country context. For example, being one of them being that it's important that for every healthcare system, that if you are targeting to eliminate disparities, to try to see are there other factors that lie underneath, if for example, just wealth disparities, are there other factors that may be mediating the relationships, right? So I think within that broader context, there's utility in understanding broader healthcare access issues across space. It really doesn't matter whether you're in Canada or in, in a developing country context. I think it harkens back to your earlier point about, say in the case of COVID-19, the different areas of the world do need to collaborate to try and figure out a better solution or yeah, because we're all affected. That point cannot be overemphasized because global health issues or health issues generally, especially when they have to do with infectious diseases like we have seen in, in the recent history of the world, have a potential to impact us all. Um, of course, some people's doomsday story is that an infectious disease is what is going to kill us or an epidemic is what is going to kill us. And so having robust systems in place through collaborations with scholars in the global south is really important for ensuring that when that big outbreak comes, that we are ready for it. And so there is a need for north-south collaborations in, in health research. What do you feel is the biggest impact of your work? For me, I think that my work so far has allowed me to see new questions that I think potentially can be more impactful. So for example, consistently we see that certain demographic of people and people in certain locations constantly are more impacted by non-communicable diseases. And I think that and I think those details are important, but they also lead to other questions. And I think trying to answer those questions it's really where the impact lies for me moving forward because what is it about those conditions, those locations that are making these diseases persistent and prevalent that even when you account for all these other factors, they seem to still persist. So I think moving forward, I'm more excited about the questions that have been generated by the previous engagements that I've been involved in. I think the excitement really is in trying to push forward these boundaries that we know as far as the field of non-communicable disease and health impacts are concerned. Absolutely. And the questions that are yet to come, right? Yes, the questions <laughs> that are yet to come, they really do excite us as researchers because you do see that every time you answer one question, there is one that remains unanswered. And it, it really speaks to the fact that much more work still needs to be done in many of these areas. That's great. I just wanted to thank you so much for coming in today to tell me about your Thanks for having me. I would like to thank everyone for listening to today's episode of You to the You. I would like to thank my guest, Vincent Query, for telling us about his healthcare research in U of T Mississauga's Department of Geography and as the Canada Research Chair in Immigrant Wellbeing and Global Health. I would like to thank the Office of the Vice Principal of Research for their support. If you listen to the show through iTunes, please consider rating View to View so that others can find the podcast. 
And please, for this new season, if you have other burning questions for our long list of experts at UTM, please send them my way. Details for getting in touch are on our website or send them directly to car.demarco at utoronto.ca. Stay tuned. Lastly, and as always, thank you to the musical director, Tim Lane, for his tracks and support. Thank you. Thank you.